Osiris. Yorba Linda, California, January 1998. A car that looks like something off the set of Mad Men rolls into a Circle K gas station, a 1963 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. A.J. Popoff, singer for the aspiring young Orange County band Lit, is making a stop on his way to band practice. He's just grabbed a bite from the Del Taco drive-thru that's part of the same lot, and he's hoping that he's got enough left over to put a little gas in his car. A big, beautiful mid-century boat that screams vintage cool, but gets about eight miles to the gallon. Being a struggling musician, AJ doesn't exactly have the financial means to keep his ride in mint condition. The gas gauge is busted, so he logs every gallon that goes into the tank on a notepad that he keeps on the front seat, writing down the mileage and doing the math so he knows when it's time to fill it up again. Frankly, even the idea of actually filling it up is a little bit extravagant. Lit's indie debut album, Tripping the Light Fantastic, isn't exactly setting the charts on fire. AJ and his bandmates are living so close to the bone that rifling around in the car seats of his caddy for spare change is a common method of scraping together gas money. In fact, that's exactly what he does. Moments later, after dispensing whatever meager amount of gas his car seat piggy bank could cover, AJ is suddenly struck by a blast of existential inspiration and a phrase pops into his brain. It's no surprise to me. I'm my own worst enemy. Because every now and then, I kick the living shit out of me. It's a couplet that feels perfectly in tune with the up-against-the-odds lifestyle that he and his band have been living, with just a touch of the tongue-in-cheek humor that they rely on to get them through the tough times. Always on the lookout for new lyrics, AJ hops back in the car, and by the light of the neon Circle K sign, he scribbles the lines on his little mileage notepad. AJ then fires up the caddy and heads off to practice with his guitar-playing brother Jeremy and his brothers from another mother, bassist Kevin Baldus and drummer Alan Schellenberger. Little does he know that he has just changed all of their lives forever and made rock and roll history in the process. Roundhill Music presents My Own Worst Enemy. If you've lived in North America at any point over the last 21 years, you've heard My Own Worst Enemy anywhere and everywhere. For the last two decades plus, the song that was seeded that night at the Circle K has been inescapable on the radio, in movies, on TV shows and commercials. It's part sports car and part SUV. In video games. At your cousin's wedding. In the karaoke bar. Supermarkets. Restaurants. If there's a place that an insanely catchy pop-punk banger could conceivably fit, it's there. 
It's the song that everybody can sing along to, sometimes even if they don't know the name of the band. But exactly how and why did my own worst enemy become permanently woven into our pop culture consciousness? What does its ubiquity tell us about the song, the music business, and ourselves? And just how the hell did a bunch of Orange County punks living with their parents create the quintessential anthem of an era that refuses to recede into the mist of history? Let's spin the story back to the 80s, when Jeremy and AJ's dad, known professionally as AJ Martin, was a DJ on LA pop stations KIIS and KNOB. Jeremy remembers a childhood spent literally surrounded by 70s and 80s pop music. Every single night, he would bring home at least two vinyl albums. And so we had vinyl albums in our living room that were like furniture. We had like probably 2,000 vinyl records in our living room just on the carpet leaning against the wall. So when he was away at work, there were a lot of years where AJ and I were just, I mean, today, probably Child Protective Services would have intervened. (laughs) But during those times where we'd seek out music and we would sit around and listen to vinyl. Even though we went through our our long hair heavy metal days where we would have nothing to do with the shit my dad was playing, it was in our blood. Yeah, we were raised on popular music. Nearby, a young Kevin Baldus was getting his own musical education even without a DJ dad. A lot of kids in the neighborhood that had older brothers that had collections. I remember, you know, Devo, The Cars, Pat Benatar, Van Halen, that type of stuff when I was growing up. So luckily I had them to kind of teach me and show me the way early on. By the time Baldus met the Popoff brothers in 1984, all three had embraced harder rocking sounds. We were definitely metal heads growing up. We were just grabbing onto everything that was rock and roll or metal. It was everything rock and roll of the 80s. You know, Rat, Dokken, Van Halen, Scorpions, Metallica, all that. And then you get into the 90s, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Pantera, Iron Maiden, obviously, Judas Priest, the British Invasion, all of that. As teens, AJ and Kevin started a band called Razzle, mixing the heavy with the hooky in a manner similar to giants of the era like Van Halen and Motley Crue. AJ, our lead singer, played one show as the drummer. I played my very first show in 1988. I was 16 years old. So I probably started in the garage when I was about 15 in 87. And AJ's like two years younger than me. So if I was 15, he was 13 on drums. It didn't take long for Jeremy to join in and for Alan Schellenberger to take over the drum seat, putting AJ in the frontman position that he was born to occupy. Immediately we felt after one show, this is not right, you know. And I said, I know a guy that plays drums. Let's grab him. So we grabbed Alan Schellenberger. And then uh, 89, 90, Jeremy joined the band. And we all had long hair and instruments. And we we did our first show in L.A. And all our friends came up. But all the hot girls were into long-haired Guns N' Roses and Bon Jovi and Skid Row and all that stuff. So we're like... Well, we got to do that, you know, if we want to get chicks. So our high school experience was kind of that. And we ended up getting good at it to the point where we were selling out every place that we played in Hollywood as, you know, we were called Razzle. And it was a long hair Sunset Strip band. But we were all teenagers and selling out the Roxy. We didn't know what a big deal that was then. We just were like, yeah, we did it. 
1993, long-haired, hard-rocking Razzle released an EP of their pop metal tunes, but they were already beginning to outgrow their teenage musical tendencies. We started to grow up. I mean, you know how how much you grow between 19, 20, 21, and just coincidentally, the entire landscape of music was changing. Guns N' Roses was on their way out. Nirvana was on their way in. And we were young enough still to be like, fuck, we love this Nirvana stuff. We love Stone Temple Pilots. We went from making money and selling out clubs. And when we said we're starting over, I mean, I was the guy booking the shows and stuff. And when I say threw my Rolodex in the trash, it was a real Rolodex. It was a, the real thing, you know, with little cards in it. And I just threw it in the trash because I didn't want any preconceived notions about what we were up to. Fortunately, by this time, the guys had found the perfect laboratory to develop their new sound. A rundown warehouse space that they tricked out until it was like they were practicing in their own private venue. Four guys in a sweaty warehouse in Anaheim with a couple of 12 packs of natural light. On the border of like Yorba Linda, it, it felt like an old dirty rock club. I mean, it had lots of layers, lots of spilled beer. We painted the floor red, so that red floor became, you know, oftentimes sticky and scuffed up from gear being dragged in and out. We put carpet all over the walls, like remnant old used carpet, and then to make it look uniform, we covered it in black plastic. And then we hung lamp sconces across the wall over the black plastic. We had friends that gave us furniture, and so it was very, like, 70s, like, yellow velvet couch and weird funky chairs. And we had a buddy who was, worked for a staging company, and we scored some stairs from the Guns N' Roses tour, you know, built a stage and had lights in there. I mean, it, it, was, it would have been probably a club that people would have paid to right. go in to watch bands play. Because it kind of had that sort of exit in, whiskey-a-go-go kind of feel to it on a little bit smaller of a scale. But it was a proper stage with proper PA and lights. And we took six months in the warehouse and we just... Had to shake that name. I mean, that, that name was way too cute for the way we were feeling. Like, yeah. Razzle? Like, what are totally. we, like, little like bubblegum teenagers? Like, it was like our first identity crisis. We like, we got to lose that shit. We're going to go to the dark side. By this point, the band had a crucial ally in their corner, one who would become even more important over time. Born and raised in Detroit, Ruta Sepetis had moved to L.A. to get into the music business and was working as an intern for hit songwriter Desmond Child, who had already written Kiss's I Was Made For Loving You, Bon Jovi's You Give Love a Bad Name, Joan Jett's I Hate Myself For Loving You, and Aerosmith's Dude Looks Like a Lady, just to name a few. She happened to catch Razzle on L.A.'s Sunset Strip, where they were already playing hotspots like the legendary club Gazaris. Even in that early form, she saw something special in them. Desmond was working with another producer at the time, and since I was working under Desmond's umbrella, I was going out often to see bands. And this producer was interested in a band that was playing Gazaris, and he said, will you go with me? You know, we'll talk to them on behalf of Desmond. I said, sure. We went, and I don't even remember the name of whatever artist we went to see, but after they played, it was so crowded because out of nowhere, I mean, the place just flooded with people. And we were pushed toward the front of the stage. And the guy I was with said, you know what, when the band goes on, things will shift and we can leave. The band went on, it was lit. 
And that was it. And that was in the early days, you know, when they were razzled. This was, you know, 1992 Akizaris. And there was a huge buzz about razzle. And the stage production that they had for, you know, as young as they were, it was so incredibly professional. And I pushed my way backstage with this producer to introduce myself. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, are they, are they going to know who Desmond Child is? And I mentioned it and they immediately knew who Desmond was. They knew his discography of, of hits. And then we just started having meetings and talking about co-writing. And then I eventually became, became, you know, their manager. They quickly discovered a simpatico spirit and soon the band had themselves a manager who was prepared to go to the wall for them and eager to shepherd them to their next phase. For a while, the newly grungy band was called Stain, named after the Nirvana song. But by 1995, they renamed themselves Lit, with the idea that their ultra-aggressive sound would be like a bomb exploding. However, the bulk of the Razzle audience hadn't really followed them into their new incarnation, and times were tough. We were broke dick motherfuckers. I mean, we knew where all the happy hours were. Our band practice schedule was Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. And the reason was because Wednesday nights, Kelly's Corner had dollar schooners. We used to go to El Torito for their happy hour and we'd get chimichangas. If you bought beer, you got to enjoy their spread of chimichangas and carrots. We'd get platefuls of carrots. We had the pizza scam. So we're starving, right? So someone came up with, like, order a pizza. But then when the delivery guy comes, say, oh, no, we didn't order a pizza. Um, I mean, I have two bucks if you want to. But like and basically, you know, here's the guy, poor guy standing at the door. He's got the pizza. This was something that the guys sort of, you know, hit me to. And none of us had money. Yeah. If there was like a special at Del Taco or, or something, we were all there. But being caught between rock and roll and a hard place only inspired the band to pump up its work ethic to a superhuman level. As broke as they were, Lit was accomplishing more on their own than most major label promo teams could even dream of. We were way more DIY than any of those motherfuckers. I mean, we made money when we played. We put every penny of that money into more stickers, more posters, more CDs, and we would get two or three buddies with pickup trucks and vans to meet us at our warehouse. We would practice from, you know, 6 to 10, 11. We would get wheat paste, which is the cheapest wallpaper paste that there is. And we would mix it up in our bathroom and stir it up or whatever. And we would head out and three guys would take one freeway going one direction. Three guys would take that freeway going the other direction. From three the guys valley would go, to San Diego, pretty much. I mean, if you lived in Hollywood or you lived in Riverside... By the next morning, when you were going to work, you fucking knew Lit was playing because we plastered that shit on every electric box, on ramp and off ramp on every freeway. And the reason we did freeways because the highway patrol was never monitoring the on and off ramps, and the local police didn't monitor the on ramps or off ramps either. So we could actually plaster posters on those little electrical boxes without really anybody fucking with us. It we, caught up with us eventually. We had to pay a couple of fines, but I mean, shit. We would find out that you know MTV was doing a rock and jock baseball game at some baseball field. We would go to that baseball field and park in the parking structure in the outfield and hang our backdrop over the edge to get on TV like dicks. You know what's crazy too is I think all those things that we did didn't do anything for our success, but it did a lot for our character and it did a lot for our discipline. It was like our boot camp and our training. 
Eventually, all their dogged determination paid off. One of their earliest gigs as Lit led the band to the next rung on the ladder. Basically, no one showed up. I think there were three people in the club and I was one of them, the devoted manager. And it turned out that the other two people in the club, one was an A&R guy who ended up signing them to Malicious Vinyl. Lit's first album, Tripping the Light Fantastic, came out on the L.A.-based indie label Malicious Vinyl in 1997. Even though the band had already started edging in a different direction by that time, it was very much a record in tune with the post-grunge pocket of history in which it was released. No doubt drummer Adrian Young, who went to high school with Jeremy and was still on the Orange County scene at the time, remembers that chapter of Lit's life. There's a lot more screaming. I think AJ was wise to not continue to do that for too long to save his voice so he'd actually sing. Something started happening to Lit right around that time. They were starting to leave the grungy riffs and the gloomy moods behind in favor of short, snappy tunes that embraced the pop-punk aesthetic exploding at the time in mid-90s Orange County. And it was when we were touring on Tripping the Light Fantastic, I think, we discovered, like, we could still rock out and still go crazy and break shit and do all that, but simplify what we're doing and make the songs more memorable and more relatable. We could still do the exact same thing that we're up here and blow off all the steam in the world, but we can refine that a little bit. And by the way, I think it should be noted that we did it completely on our own terms. We had nothing that was purely or an organic growth and transformation the band was redefining themselves in other ways, too, developing an obsession with 50s pop culture, mid-century design aesthetics, and old-school Vegas. A colorful, good-time vibe, a million miles from the overcast skies of grunge. All along, we're getting into movies and a way of living and a way of partying and a way of swingers and getting into other things deeper and almost kind of allowing ourselves to go back to pop rock which is Top 40, which AJ and Jeremy grew up on. And it all kind of came full circle. We were maturing and it was okay to write melody lines and try and do some harmonies and push ourselves to do more of that. Following a break, after years of hard work, Lit finally catch lightning in a bottle and never look back. During this time, Orange County was becoming known as a breeding ground for punk rock. Kevin Wasserman, known to music fans as Noodles, guitarist for The Offspring, notes that culturally, punk was the perfect antidote to Orange County conservatism. Because Orange County was so conservative, and you really kind of had to fit the, you know, the blonde hair, blue-eyed, you know, football player or baseball playing, you know, good grade kind of jock you're going to go on and have 2.6 kids so i think that was kind of part of it we just we just kind of rebelled against you know the idea that we were supposed to fit this mold that we just did not fit before long lit was deeply embedded in orange county's booming pop punk scene and making their way to the top of the heap ben osmondson was and is the bassist for og oc pop punk band zebrahead 
Like when we were first starting, everything in Orange County was kind of taken off. And one one of the bands that was already doing good when our band Zebra had started was Lit. And the nearest place that had shows all the time was 369. And they would sell it out well in advance every time. And we were always like amazed by it. And But it was at the same time as like Corn was starting and they were playing at that same place. And like ska bands like Real Big Fish and Save Ferris were just starting to take off. And the Offspring was already big, but they were from like more Huntington Beach area, I think. But like, it just was a time when Orange County was kind of going crazy. So there were bands everywhere. But there was the, the one club that we always hung out at was the Club 369. It was kind of like a family all the bands that played there were all friends. Wherever there's an expanding new music scene, you're sure to find music industry scouts. Matt Messer was an A&R man for EMI Music Publishing, who was constantly combing the Orange County clubs for fresh talent. At the time, when you would go to shows in L.A., on typical nights, more than half the crowd was industry. It was A&R guys. And it was competitive, you know, especially... The, in the L.A., Orange County scene, there were a lot of bands. It was a place that not only were they the local bands, but bands came from all over the country to be discovered. And it was they did it in Los Angeles and Orange County and, and the pool that Lit was playing in. Very kind of Anglo rock, you know, sort of of, of the time, a lot of, a lot of grunge bands, but sort of infusing that sort of that Southern California pop punk vibe to it as well. A lot of the bands that, that sort of made it from that scene, sort of have that thing. You know, there was there was a lot of like clever lyrics and and puns and you know funny stuff happening in a lot of them. When I would go to Orange County, the thing that stood out to me the most was the fights. Every single time I was at a show in Orange County, whether it was at Linda's or 369 or uh Chamber, it didn't matter. There was always somebody with like a busted lip or a bloody nose or yeah, it was really, really weird. You would think that all that would go on in Hollywood, but it didn't. It was all going on in Orange County. It was Zebrahead and, um, you know, Offspring. And um, Zebrahead was the band that, that Lit played with a lot. Um, they were good friends and they would play at 369 all the time together and sell that place out. It was a you know, pretty big club in a strip mall, but they, they would pack it. And, um, and it was always exciting every time they played there. But yeah, there was always somebody bleeding. The key for Messer was a lit show that he saw at L.A.'s legendary Viper Room. It was far from being one of the band's best turnouts, but that may actually have been to their advantage. There weren't very many people in the club that night. It was their manager, Ruda, a couple bartenders, maybe five or six other people in the club. Like, it's a tiny club, and it was not a particularly busy night. They just had so much energy. It was like they were playing in front of a sold-out forum. You know, that was sort of what they brought. The energy, the production. They used to do this song called Fireman that was on Tripping Live Fantastic. AJ came out, like pulled a floor tongue out from behind the drum kit and had these mallets and lit these mallets on fire and banged out the opening. I was like, holy shit, these guys have like production and like it's they're like fucking going for it. They didn't care that there was 15 people in the Viper Room. Literally could have been a sold out arena. Even in those humble circumstances, Messer saw Litt's potential appeal and signed the band to a publishing deal. As encouraging as that was, though, they were no longer with malicious vinyl and hadn't been able to attract a bigger label. 
If anything, the EMI deal made Litt's continuing lack of a record contract harder to explain. I felt the pressure, like something needs to happen here because I have to play music for a living and or I need to make money somehow. I need to do something in order for this to make sense. You know, I can't live with my parents all my life. The pressure was like, why aren't these guys bigger? Why hasn't this taken off? Because you see the shows, the local shows, and people were going crazy. And it was like, you kind of were in awe of it. And then all these bands were starting to get signed, including like, our band was a brand new band. We got signed within like our fifth show. It was crazy fast. And it's like, okay, we're signed now and we're recording an album, but Lit still isn't. What's happening here? You just thought they were big everywhere. But as soon as you left Orange County, you realized it wasn't. So it was more of a, what the hell is going on? Why aren't they bigger everywhere? Zebrahead, they're our peers, dude. Those guys were right there with us and they're already out there making real videos and putting out albums on a major label. Like what the hell? So we were feeling that kind of pressure. Bands were finally getting to that level that we played with. They were finally getting to that level where they're getting signed and things are happening for them. At the time, labels were coming out to every single show. We were like, something has to happen right about now because literally every major label is at every show. Every show's sold out. Something's about to happen or this is it. Like Time to pack up and go home. It was during this make-or-break period that fate finally smiled on Lit in a way that would lead to a place in the sun in more ways than one. We were writing a lot of songs at that point, you know? There was always one or two or three new ideas. We would just jam for a couple hours just on a riff and then come back to it the next time. We weren't, like, on a schedule. We didn't have a quota or, you know, a deal with somebody where we had to turn stuff in or any of that kind of stuff. So it was just... We just had time to kind of vibe on stuff and jam on stuff. And then sometimes, you know, I would just start jamming on a riff and Kevin and Al would just sort of follow. And then and then we'd be kind of like, just try riding that note. Oh, play it like this. And we'd kind of jam on it and sort of start building the structure of it. Alan, our drummer, was playing a video game. He was really good at video games, so he'd be in there forever. And Jeremy brought up, hey guys, I, I got this riff melody line uh, thing happening. And, and he played that intro riff. And AJ, being the ex-drummer that he was, got behind Alan's drums. And when Jeremy first showed us that riff, that's all it was. Over and over and over. And I remember AJ and I just going, and we would just wait for the riff to go all the way around again. And that's all we had. We finally got to a point where AJ and I started going, so we were then playing something along with Jeremy's riff. And now the song was moving a little bit. Like, uh, it wasn't just the riff with the da-da. Now the song had wheels, and it was starting to move. Somewhere in there, you know, finally Alan came in, like, what are you guys playing? And I think he got behind the drums, and now AJ needs something to sing. He doesn't have anything to sing. That's when AJ rolled out to his 64 Cadillac brought in a scrap piece of paper and said, I wrote this down the other day. It's no surprise to me. I am my own worst enemy. AJ was like, oh, I got this line. And he went out to his car and what about this? And it just fit. The syllables just fit in those holes. It quickly came together. I believe AJ and Jeremy then got together and finished some of the words. There's not a lot in that song. There's the main riff and the bounce, and then it goes into the chorus. And then it goes back into the bounce. That's all there really is. So we probably had the gist of it that first night. 
Jeremy called me when they were writing it and he played the riff for me over the phone. And I will never forget that. Once the band had given birth to my own worst enemy, it was time to introduce the baby to Uncle Matt Messer. I remember actually the first time hearing, hearing enemy going down to their studio, going on to the warehouse in Anaheim and them like, you know, all right, we got, you know, we got a couple new ones. And as soon as that guitar, I, I like, I remember it, I, hearing it and being like, holy shit, like that's, that's the one, like it was just so hooky. What a great riff, so memorable. I was like, man, we got to record that. The band soon dropped my own worst enemy into their live set list, and the response was as immediate and explosive as the song itself. The first time we played that song, it was our peers that freaked out first. It was guys in other bands that were in the crowd or that had played that night, and they were like, fuck, dude. We did a show at the Troubadour in late 98. It was the first time we ever played My Worst Enemy live. The guys from Zebrahead were there, and Ben, the bass player for Zebrahead, approached me after the show and said, what's that new song you played? I said, My Worst Enemy. He goes, dude, that's an insane song. That's a hit. I'm all, really? Okay, you know. At the time, we were mixing our album with Chris Lord Algy, like, just down the street. And we, we got a text, and it's like, oh, we're playing a showcase for record labels down the street at the Troubadour once you guys come. And it's like, oh, okay, we'll go. And you go in those places. It's so awkward and weird. I was like, I'm glad we came because it's like, 10 dudes in suits standing with their arms crossed watching them play and it's so awkward to do those kind of shows and i walked up to kevin after the show and i was like holy crap like dude that song my own worst enemy the one you guys just played that song is going to be huge you guys are stoked this it's done like not only are you going to get signed you're going to be big like i wish i had my own damn record label at the time because i would have signed them for that song so fortunately for lit Somebody else stepped in and took care of that recording contract. But it wasn't one of the suits who were standing around that night at the Troubadour. It was Ron Fair and Bruce Floor from RCA, who discovered the band thanks to the demo they recorded at EMI. So we had access to a, a recording studio with EMI Publishing. We would usually go in and do three to four songs, record them, just demos. I know for a fact we recorded Enemy at EMI Studios on Sunset. And it was right across the street from Tower Records. Um, but I remember that's where we recorded the demo for My Worst Enemy. We demoed it with the words that we wrote the night we wrote all the words down. But I'm pretty sure a lot of that stuff was filler. Like, a lot of the words in that song were very conversational and just fit in the box at the time. And we probably intended to go back and be smarter about some of those words. And we just never had a chance because the song just took off from under us. We demoed it, and then... Within a week or two, we had a deal at RCA. It was a demo that came to us through Ruda, Sepetis, the band's manager. Ron has great ears, said, I think this is a smash. I validated it from my standpoint. And Ron and I went down to the Viper Room in the middle of the day. And the band was on stage and they played it like they were in an arena. And we signed the band. It wasn't complicated. There wasn't like the song went through seven iterations and the band was on the label for nine years before they broke through. The thing walked in the door. Fortunately, Ron heard it. I heard it. We went for it. 
Because if we're gonna change our mind, now's the time to do it. Wait, I gotta read this over first. Dude, that guy just close. Don't read. You have to read shit. You know what it says? Grab your ankles. As it turns out, signing that record deal with RCA was a totally painless experience that worked out just fine for Lit. The next thing you know, the band is at NRG Recording Studios in North Hollywood, where everybody from Hootie and the Blowfish to Korn had already made multi-platinum monsters. Kevin, why don't you tell us where we are? We're in front of NRG in North Hollywood. With a monster of their own in their back pocket, they begin cutting their second album. Behind the board is Don Gilmore, a producer with a knack for creating the crunchy magnetic sounds of 90s modern rock, who'd already worked with Linkin Park, Eve Six, X's John Doe, and plenty more. Hey, you know what the good news is? After listening to all the drum tracks, man, we got some fucking great drum tracks. Okay, ready? Take one. She is rolling. Oh, sorry. That's good, turn down. Gilmore brought serious expertise to the table, but he was also working with a band that had already spent long hours refining their material and tightening their song arrangements, including the arrangement for the song that would keep people talking about Lit for decades to come. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Lit's final album version of My Own Worst Enemy was a faithful recreation of the demo recording that got them their deal with RCA. The master recording was very, very similar. The song that everybody knows is basically the demo that was done. Uh, I think that the first chorus wasn't there. But other than that, I mean, it sounds pretty, pretty much the same. For the most part, the songs were pretty finished when he finally got his hands on it. But I would almost say sonically and the way things sounded, obviously, he did that. The songs were probably 90 to 95% done. Once the backing track for Enemy was complete, A.J. Popoff stepped into the vocal booth at NRG and delivered the lead vocal, which would become the band's signature. Please tell me, please tell me why Car is in the front yard And I'm sleeping with the clothes on I came in through the window last night On February 23rd, 1999, RCA will unveil A Place in the Sun. The lives of the lit band members will never be the same, and neither will American pop culture. But the wheels start spinning sooner than anybody expects. Even before the album is finished, the genie has already busted free of the bottle, and it is not about to go back in and wait for an official record release. Next on My Own Worst Enemy, Enemy explodes on the airwaves and takes Lit from a warehouse in Orange County to the global stage. One listen. Holy shit. I'm like, you gotta hear this. Dude, I just heard your song on K-Rock. My Own Worst Enemy came on K-Rock. No, you didn't. That song was like wildfire. They took the stage at Madison Square Garden and just tore it apart. 
We got to act like Led Zeppelin and Van Halen. Who was going to tell us no? My Own Worst Enemy was produced for Roundhill Music by Osiris Media. For Roundhill, Joe Calitri is president of Roundhill Records. Lucy Bartosi is the senior director of marketing. And Imani Giverts is the digital content manager. For Lit, the executive producer is Dave Rose, president of Deep South Entertainment. The members of Lit are AJ Popoff, Jeremy Popoff, Kevin Baldus, Taylor Carroll, and Alan Schellenberger in memoriam. For Osiris Media, the executive producers are Brad Stratton and Kirsten Cluthy. All interviews were conducted by Brad Stratton, and the script was written by Jim Allen. My Own Worst Enemy was edited, mixed, and narrated by Brad Stratton. To learn more about Lit and receive news and updates about their upcoming album and live appearances, please follow them on Facebook and Instagram at LitBandOfficial or on their website, LitBand.com. Osiris.